Why, hello there, everyone, and welcome to already the sixth episode of the Monaco Moments podcast. In this podcast, I talk to the most interesting people that I can possibly find, and I hopefully bring you an interesting listening experience. Now, today, I think I have an extremely interesting guest for you because I'm talking to none other than Dr. Mark Golston. Mark is the best-selling author of seven books, including Just Listen, which became the top book on listening in the world. He's also an executive coach, advising confidant to CEOs from entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 companies. And what he does is he helps them become more impactful by increasing their non-technical skills to match their technical skills. He's also been a UCLA professor of psychiatry for more than 20 years. He's trained FBI uh, and police hostage negotiators, and he's been one of the country's leading experts on suicide prevention, and he's even co-created and moderated a multi-honor documentary called Stay Alive, an intimate conversation about suicide prevention. Now, that's not all because he also has his own podcast. He uh, has a podcast called My Wake Up Call, and he interviews influencers like Lauren, Larry King, Ken Blanchard, Norman Lear, and many others about the wake up calls that have changed their lives. If you want to find out more about him, just go to markgolston.com. That is M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. Uh, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this interview. I really hope you guys will enjoy. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Mark Golston. All right. Welcome, everyone. This is the sixth episode of the Monocle Moments podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Mark Golson. Mark, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Yap. Awesome. Um, so my first question is always uh, asking people if they can just tell a little bit about themselves. So could you? Well, I, uh, a little bit about myself. Well, I'm, I was a clinical psychiatrist for oh, close to 40 years. And one of my specialty areas was suicide prevention, and uh, and none of my patients killed themselves. So, but we can talk about that. And uh, and then I became an author. Well, along with that, I became an author, and I've written seven books. And probably my best known book is a book called Just Listen, which became the top book on listening in the world. It's in twenty five languages. I speak around the world. Last October, I spoke in Moscow along with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and I was one of the other speakers. He, 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 was, he was a headliner, but, uh, but my books are bestsellers in Russia for some reason or other. Yeah. So the first real question I want to ask you, thank you for that introduction, by the way. Um, I've been listening to your podcast, which is great. Thank you much for sharing that. Um, you're putting them out at a really fast pace. I see you're almost at episode 100. Um, but one question I love, which you always start with, is at the end of your life, what are you going to remember most? So you're asking me that? You're putting me on the spot? I'm asking okay. you that. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, well, th there's a crazy story I sometimes bring up, but I'm not putting myself in his position. But there's a story about Abraham Lincoln. And the story is that he was going from one town to the next, and he passed a horse stuck in a ditch. And he rode with his party, you know, half a mile, and then he circled back. And when he got back to the horse, the people in his party said, why did you do that? And he said, because I couldn't get the pain of the horse out of my head. So that's how I feel. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a depressed person, but I can't 
get the pain of the world out of my head. And what I've discovered is when you get people to listen to each other, when you get people, and my book, Just Listen, is about how do you cause other people to feel felt by you? Not just understood, but felt by you. Because what happens is when people feel felt by you and they feel safe, they start to cry with relief. And when they start to cry with relief, they calm down. And when they calm down, you can have a constructive conversation. Now, when I coach CEOs and entrepreneurs, uh, I have mixed feelings about coaching sales teams. And I may stop doing that. Because really, if I teach them empathy, it, it's be, you got to really care. You know, I don't want to teach people empathy just to be able to sell more. And look, sales teams, it's all based on selling more, you know, the clothes and all that. So I have mixed feelings about that. But basically what I've been doing is um, working more with CEOs about how to be more impa uh, impactful with their people, their customers, uh, their investors, their community. And, and many CEOs are great at problem solving, but they're not often that good at knowing how to connect. They come from their uh, sort of their left brain, uh, and their and it's and their left brain, their problem solving brain is much much more developed than their right brain, their more emotional brain. So I help them to develop more their emotional brain, because what happens is people are drawn to that. Now, you know, you're you're uh, in Europe. But, you know, in America, as everywhere, we're going through the pandemic. And there's daily briefings, or there were daily briefings by President Trump, and also Governor Andrew Cuomo. And Andrew Cuomo, it's night and day. Because Andrew Cuomo, you really feel that he cares deeply about the people in New York State and New York City. And he's even softening up. He's telling personal stories. But what happens is you that causes you to trust him. You know, one of the problems that America and the world faces is they don't trust uh, President Trump because it doesn't feel as if he cares. Now, maybe he does, and I'm not saying this to be political, but it doesn't feel as if he cares. And... And I think when it feels as if someone cares about you and they're not just trying to win or make money off you, you feel safe. Hmm. And when you feel safe, as I say, you calm down, you lean into the conversation. <clears throat> and the key, I believe, and this is what I do when I'm working with CEOs, is that you build on that safety. And often what will happen is whoever whoever those people are that are feeling safe. And we're not just talking about your people. We're talking about customers. They feel safe that you're not going to sell them a piece of junk that they can't get rid of or they can't use. Yeah, exactly. And what, yeah. and what happens is safety, at least in America, is so rare that people feel grateful. When you can cause someone to feel safe, they feel grateful and appreciative, and they'll often return the favor by, uh, you know, by wanting to support you. It's interesting in my podcast, my wake-up call, what I tell people because I get I get requests 
three times a week from PR agency. Oh, my, my client has a, a new book. You know, can you have him on the podcast? And I say, mm-hmm. have you listened to the podcast? Because it's not about promoting a platform or yeah. selling a product. We can talk about that. It's about getting my audience to fall in love with my guest. And they fall in love with my guest because uh, I somehow am able to bring out their vulnerability, their courage, their humor, their wisdom. And then when people fall in love with that guest, they uh, they want to find out more. They want to support that guest. Exactly. Maybe we can go a little deeper there because one thing I'm really impressed by is you listen to your podcast and you see that within a couple of minutes you go so deep. And I'm I'm assuming that you don't know all of these people beforehand. Oh, no, I... I it, Uh, and this is the lazy side of me. I, I have breakfast. Well, now it's not breakfast, but I meet with Larry King seven days a week, and and I'm part of this breakfast group. And he and he does it because it, you know it um, it gets him out of bed. It keeps him connected, and he still does a show. He doesn't do CNN, uh, but yeah. uh, uh, but what I've what I've noticed with Larry and what Larry said is he doesn't prepare. For any of his conver- uh, any of his interviews, in fact, he goes into the studio. He's been doing it for 61 years. He goes into the studio and he doesn't have any idea who he's going to be speaking to before he sees them. So you don't prepare at all, or I, I prepare. Uh, now my guests may not be prepared for what they're about to get from me, but the idea <laughs> is when I when I start out with that, what matters most to you, and how did you get there. And so I think mm. what happens is people pause, and they know that's going to be the question, and they pause. Um, they often like the question, and then I'll say, where did that start? And what were some wake-up calls? And what happens is they start to relive parts of their life, and they re-experience them. Uh, what happens is they start to open up because often they're so busy doing their business or whatever that they haven't had a time or had someone interested in that. And as they start to open up about that, they start to reveal certain things. They start to reveal either parents who were their heroes or parents who were their enemies. And and then I just drill down when I hear something that has emotional juice on it. So, so why do you think it is that people trust you so quickly? Like you, you're on video, you're talking through a screen. How do you get to that level of trust so quickly? Well, I think um, what people uh, sense, and in my book, Just Listen, one of the things I talk about is you want to be a pal to people. And pal stands for mm. purposeful, agendaless listening. Purposeful, agendaless listening. And For me, the main purpose is to bring out uh, the the um, the humanity of my guests, and and many of my guests really want that to come out, but they just don't have many conversations where it's brought up because people bring out, "What do you think about this? What do you think about that?" And I would say 50% of the people I've interviewed have said. That is the most vulnerable and open I've ever been in an interview. And I say, we don't have to post it. 
I get, we don't have to post it. In fact, in the invitation, when I get back, I say, look, this is going to be a very personal conversation, and we don't have to post it. But everyone has said, no, I, I want people to know this part of me exists. It just doesn't come out usually. And so what happens is they like opening up, and I usually make it safe. And also I share my own vulnerability, you know, my own dark times, my own struggles to be a better person, uh, my own imposter syndrome that, you know, you know, I deal with. And so what happens is it becomes a conversation, and then they... And then, and then they share, and, and and what I've discovered, Yap, uh, especially as you're new in your career and new to podcasts, there is a real hunger in people to be real. They're just afraid to, and there is a hunger in audiences to to hear real. Something that was interesting, I have no idea how this happened, uh, but about three days ago, I think it was an Entrepreneur Magazine, someone wrote the top 25 best podcasts, best business podcasts for entrepreneurs. And I was on the list, my wake-up call. And I have wow, no idea, amazing. because the podcast is an inspirational one. I was 25th. I mean, I, I just snuck in there, i got to tell you. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I think there's a hunger for this hmm. in the world. So at the beginning of um, of the podcast, you mentioned that you kind of, um, correct me if I say it wrong, but kind of feel this pain of the world around you. Uh, and you talk a lot about empathy. So it seems to me like you may be more sensitive than other people to how people feel. How, how would you feel about that? Or would you agree? Uh, probably. Um I want to give you, let me give you three anecdotes. I don't even think I talked about these, and, and we have time, right, on the podcast here? We have all so, the time, yeah. All the time. So, and let me see if I can remember in a certain order. Because one of them is listening, where I learned to listen into someone's mind. The second is where I learned to listen into their eyes. And the third is where I learned to listen into their soul. So the first one, um, uh, when I was a medical student, and anyone who has heard my podcast, and, and I'm open about this, I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I think I had untreated depression. And the second time I dropped out, they wanted to kick me out because they were losing money on me. But the dean of students went to bat for me because he, as he told me, he said, you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. We should, but we don't. And the world needs that goodness. And you just don't know it because we don't grade it. And I think I was at a low point. So he reached in and said, you deserve to be on this planet because the world needs you and you will discover it at 35. And so when I went through med school, uh, you know, I would listen to the patient's symptoms, but I'd also feel that pain. And so here's the listening into people's minds. And my psychiatrist colleagues will say, well, Mark, you know, you had a hallucination, so screw them. Uh, but I was at the Veterans Hospital in Boston, and I was a little bit intimidated by all the details because I'm an empath, I'm not a detail person. And there's a group of us. I'm, the, I'm a medical student. There's the uh, 
bunch of doctors, the attending doctor, and it's the, and it's the veterans hospital. So, you know, it's a little bit regimented. And I remember, and I was a little intimidated by, can I remember all the details? And everybody else seems to be better at that than me. And we, we pass, and I don't remember his name, but we, we, we go to, I'll call him Mr. Jones. We get outside his room, and everybody is debating. Uh, I think he needs this. I think he needs that. What about this? What's your differential diagnosis? And, you know, and I'm trying to follow all this. Um, and then the nurse comes over to us, and we're outside this patient's room, and she looks at us, and she said, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jump from the roof last night, and he's in the morgue? And so everybody was quiet, didn't know what to do. And I heard this, just this voice, and it said, maybe he needed something else. It was clear as day. Maybe he needed something else. It's a little bit like the Abraham Lincoln thing. Um, and, you know, and then they shook it off, and then you know, they went to the next room. But, but that's stuck with me. You know, because there I was trying to follow all the details of treating him, but there was no one to treat because he had killed himself. So that's the first thing. The second thing, which taught me how to listen into people's eyes. Uh, I was uh, at uh, UCLA Hospital, and I was consulting, uh, This I think during my training or just maybe slightly after, and I was called to by uh, some oncologists and surgeons. They said, uh, "We just wrote, we need you to okay an order. We just put uh, we'll call him Mr. Smith. We just put him on restraints on his arms and legs, and we need a uh, we need a order for a antipsychotic medicine because he's pulling at his IVs, he's pulling at the uh, ventilator tube in his neck, and he's, he's just, you know, he's, he's, he's out of his mind, and so we need you to come up. So I go up there, and Mr. Smith's eyes are like saucers. And he's screaming at me, but he can't talk because he's got the tube in his, uh, in his throat, and he's all strapped on like this. And I said, what? And he goes, ah. I said, what? He's going, ah. And, and he can't move. And I said, what is it? And it's screaming at me with his eyes. And then, I, and, and what the other doctors said, he's psychotic. He's hallucinating. Uh, and I even gave him a little pen. You know, his, his hand was uh, uh, strapped down, and I just scribbled it. And so I thought, well, maybe they're right. And I said, you know, Mr. Smith, we put your hands and legs in restraints because you were pulling at everything and you were kicking at everything, and I'm and we're giving you a medication to calm you down. And when things calm down, we'll just take you off everything. And he's still, he's like looking at me like, <clears throat> and so uh, I write the order, and then a couple days later, I get paged by the doctors, and they said, Mr. Smith is off the respirator and he told us to page you. So I go into the room and there he is seated in bed and he holds on to my eyes like I can hold on to your eyes kind of like this. See, I can take them wherever I want. 
And so he holds on to my eyes and he says, pull up a chair. And he just kept looking at me and he said, what I was trying to tell you is a piece of the respirator had broken off and was stuck in my throat. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through something like that again. Do you understand me? And he just looked at me. And I think I got a little tearful and I said, oh, I understand. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So that taught me to listen into people's eyes. When you listen into people's eyes and you let go of what you're trying to sell them, especially people in pain, they're screaming out at you, help me, help me, help me. But what happens is it feels so overwhelming, we often can't look into their eyes because we're too busy diagnosing them, putting them on this and that and the other thing, because it's kind of painful to look into those eyes. You feel like they're going to pull you in like a drowning person. So that was the second episode. And the third one, which probably changed everything, is I was a suicide specialist because one of my early mentors was one of the pioneers in the field of suicide prevention. Uh, probably one of the top three ever. Um, And he was at UCLA, and he used to refer me suicidal patients who needed to be discharged but were still suicidal. But they weren't acutely suicidal, but you couldn't keep them forever. And so he would refer them to me to see them because a lot of the trainees didn't want to see them because they thought they're still suicidal. And uh, so he referred people to me. So that's how I started having a, a practice with a number of suicidal patients. In fact, it was recommended, you know, when you're a practicing psychiatrist, don't see more than one at a time. Don't see more than one at a time. And I would say a quarter to a third of my practice were suicidal people. And so there was one that I'll call Nancy that changed everything. So this is what I call listening into people's souls. She had made three attempts before I started seeing her, and when I was with her, she rarely looked into my eyes. So if you're looking at me, she'd be like this. She wasn't catatonic, but she really didn't make much contact. You know, and she'd answer questions sort of monosyllabically. And in those days, I used to moonlight, which means, you know, I would cover for other psychiatrists at one of the state hospitals once a month. And sometimes when you're moonlighting, you're overtired. You don't sleep for, I don't know, 36 hours or something. And so on a Monday, I come in and I'm seeing Nancy. And she's like this. And because I was overtired, you know, when you get overtired, you get a little bit disconnected, but you also get hypersensitive, the stuff inside you and the world. And so as I'm looking at Nancy, all of a sudden, all the color in the room turns to black and white. So I'm looking at the room, and it's black and white. And then I get these cold chills through me. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. And so I'm a medical doctor. Uh, and so I did a neurologic exam on myself. Now, she's looking like this, so it's not rude. And I'm going, I'm tapping my elbows, going like this, looking at my finger here, you know, seeing, am I having a stroke or a seizure? And then I realized I'm not having a stroke or a seizure. But then I had this crazy idea that I was looking at the world 
through her eyes and feeling what she felt. Hmm. Cold, black and white, lifeless. And because I had, uh, I was sleep deprived, I blurted something out that normally I would have kept to myself. And what I said was, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I will miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to do it to get out of the pain. And I thought, I just blew it. I just gave her permission to kill herself. And then she looked at me. I mean, she looked at me. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding I'm overdue. And I said, what are you thinking? What are you thinking, Nancy? And she looked at me and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of this pain, maybe I won't need to. And then she gave up being suicidal. And I said, here's what we're going to do. And I'm looking into her eyes like I'm looking into yours. I'm not going to throw treatments and solutions at you that you probably aren't going to follow through on because everything's been thrown at you. Would that be okay? And she looked at me with a look that said, keep talking. I'm interested. This is interesting. And I looked into her eyes and I said, what I'm going to do instead, Nancy, is I'm going to find you wherever you are and keep you company there as long as it takes because I don't want you to be alone in hell. Would that be okay? And then she got a little tearful. And that's how we proceeded. And I think part of it, what happened, is I was just recreating what that dean of students in medical school did for me. He reached in and said, you're not going anywhere, and I'm, uh, and I'm, uh, and I'm not letting go of you, and you deserve to be here. That must have felt really intense, all of those three experiences you mentioned there. It did, it did. But, um, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of my late mentors, I've been fortunate. I've had seven mentors. Sadly, they've all died. And one of my last mentors is a guy named Warren Bennis. And if you look up Warren Bennis, he is probably one of the top five experts on leadership who ever lived. Some people will say he was the father of leadership. He mentored uh, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks. He mentored uh, David Gergen, you know, the, uh, the uh, CNN analyst, and they all loved him. And one of the things that Warren told me, and he got this from actually an American playwright named Saul Bellow, he said, be a first-class noticer. Because noticing is different than looking, watching, and seeing. When you're looking, watching, and seeing, you're an observer. But when you notice, you connect to it. Like I'm noticing that I'm looking into this camera lens, you know, and I'm noticing that, you know, the size of it. And I'm just noticing that you went, hmm, which means that you took in something I said about being a first-class noticer and that you're thinking about that and saying, that's interesting. 
And so I'm noticing, now I don't know if you, that's what's happening, but it was. No, it was, yeah, but I'm noticing that there was something about that word that you found interesting and you're probably going to think about after our interview. Is mm. that true? Th that is true for sure, yeah. Um, actually, something I find very interesting is I've, I've read a couple of your books, I've watched videos on your YouTube channel, I've listened to your podcasts, and um, there's so much great information there. Uh, I, I think my favorite was talking to crazy, because mm -hmm. it brought my own thinking to kind of like a new level. Um, however, I can imagine that a lot of people see the knowledge and they're like, okay, this is great knowledge, but how am I going to do this? And, and the reason I'm asking is you have the What Made You Smile Today campaign, right? Uh, and there's two guys, I forgot their names, Nowhere Man, Brian and Alex, who did the video. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and you could see when they were just trying to apply the one simple thing, asking what made you smile today, that it was really hard for them. They were getting nervous. They were so. I love all the knowledge, but I'm just wondering what are your maybe tips and tricks for internalizing the knowledge? I think when you take knowledge and you try something and it changes an experience you have inside, and you know, and it changes it in a way that you never imagined, you want more of that. So the people from nowhere, man, what happened is, first of all, doing the exercise, uh, a lot of people who are in technology, uh, including uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bezos, Musk, Steve Jobs, uh, Sundar, Pakai, uh, less so Satya and Adela, and we can talk about that. Most technologists are emotionally shy because they focus, uh, they're like engineers, so they focus on solving problems. Um, and, and, but they're emotionally shy, meaning you know, it's underdeveloped because their technological problem-solving skills are so huge. And a lot of people in the entertainment industry also have that too, because what's exciting? How do, how do we get more uh, viewers? Uh, how do we, uh, you know, how do we get more downloads? You know, th you know, that's the coin of the realm for podcasts. How many more? How do we get more downloads? Maybe we can get sponsors. That sort of thing. <laughs> and so they're thinking that, yeah. uh, uh, but they're emotionally shy at connecting with people, and I think they felt awkward because it was a way of giving up control, and also, it was a way of giving up an agenda. I mean, the agenda was we have a challenge this week and we met with this Dr. Goulston and we're going to try it. But it was not something that they were used to. But the experience they had, and I hope you'll provide a link to it, was it, yeah. it was it, it amazed them. And in my What Made You Smile Today TEDx talk, you know, what people discover is, you know, when you take people in the world who just feel like they're functions, they have a name tag on And when you look at their name tag and you introduce yourself, this is part of the TEDx talk, and you introduce your, you say, thank you, Mary, my name's Mark. I have a question for you. And they get nervous. And you say, no, you didn't do anything wrong. Mary, what made you smile today? And what happens, you have to ask the question like you want to know. And you watch them. They pause. And 90% of them have a huge smile. 
and they'll say, uh, just waking up today, it's a beautiful day. Uh, in my TEDx talk, uh, one of the people I asked, she looked at me and she said, seeing you, sweetie. And what happened is if you look at them, what's happened is you've turned them into a person because you, you related to them name to name. You leveled the playing field. And you gave them a second taste of something that they're grateful for that made them happy. Yeah. And then they're grateful to you because you asked them and then you noticed it. And then what it does for us is you walk away and you say, you know, that didn't make me any money, but I just made the world a little happier. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So that was their experience. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I love the campaign, by the way. I've, uh, I've actually tried it out and I got uh, good responses so far. And you're, and you're right, by the way, about the tips, the tools. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I, I like to give tips. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give a, here's a magic tip that, that's in Talking to Crazy. Uh, and you may remember it. Yeah. Uh, but it's called the FUD grud, FUD crud technique. And I just call it FUD crud so people can remember. And so if yeah. you're having an argument with someone, and there are, and their their voice is getting you know up, and yours is getting up, or someone is just giving being sullen. They're just cold to you. What you say to them is instead of escalating, let's say they vented at you, and instead of getting yeah. angry at them, you pause, and you say to them, "You seem frustrated, and I think you're holding back." And they go, "What?" Say, because they're expecting you to escalate or get defensive. And they go, what? Yeah, exactly. I say, yeah, you seem frustrated and I think you're holding back because I also think that you're upset and disappointed. That's the FUD. Yeah. And they go, what? Yeah, I don't think you're just frustrated. I think you're upset and I think you're disappointed. So can you, can you fill in what you're frustrated, upset, and disappointed about? And what happens is they begin to talk. And what you really want to do is get the upset out. But you don't start by saying, you seem upset, because they say, I'm not upset. You don't say to someone, you sound angry. I'm not angry. So every, people are comfortable talking about frustration because everybody's frustrated. And as they begin, as they finish talking about the frustration, you say, yeah, yeah as I said, I don't think you're just frustrated. I think you're upset. What are you upset about? And you pull that out of them. And, and, you, and, and you ask them, give me an example. Because when they give you an example, they relive it. And whatever the example is, you don't get defensive. You could say, you know, I can see how you felt that way. And if I was you in that situation, I would have felt the same way. So, you know, you're, you're, you're validating and you're normalizing their thing. But really what you, where you want to get them to is, uh, and I think you're disappointed either in me or yourself or that our situation has gone from good to this. What's that about? Hmm. And if in your mind's eye, what's happened is you've helped them get things out of their chest, you didn't get defensive, but then when they're starting to talk about being disappointed, you can have a calmer conversation. Hmm. Make sense, kind of? It, it makes a lot of sense, and I want to. I want to get a bit deeper because uh, last night I was actually having a uh, a conversation with someone, and it was getting to this kind of point. And I think I quite naturally tried to not take it personally, and 
ask questions about them instead of first focusing on me and escalating. Um, however, the person I was talking to was extremely aware of the fact that I had just read your books and I had explained the techniques in the book. Um, and so the reaction was like, stop using those techniques, you know, like, don't ask me these questions. I know exactly what you're doing, you know, kind of. Um, so here's the issue. Yeah. So I'm giving people techniques, uh, but they mainly work. When you care about the person as opposed to maneuvering them. It's interesting. I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, uh, I used to uh, be a part of some sort of a networking group years ago, and there would be lawyers and accountants and uh, financial planners, and you'd have lunches with them. You know, you'd have the monthly meeting, and you'd have lunch with them. I actually told this story in Just Listen. And, um, and I was with... a. A uh, young man, he was probably she, early 30s, and a woman. And uh, and he asked her all these questions. You know, where'd you go to college? What'd you major in? And then at a certain point, it shifted to wanting to get business. And I'm watching and listening. And, you know, as we leave, and I give people tips, uh, and I might, and I often say, can I make an observation that's to prepare them for the fact that I'm just going to hit them with a two-by-four? Can I make an observation, Yap? Uh, so, um, <laughs> Go ahead. So, so, so what I said to him, and he said, yeah, and he was a little bit, thing, I said, you know, I love the questions you came up with. They were great. I'm remembering some of them. Uh, but if I was very wealthy which is the kind of client you want. In fact, if I was a billionaire, because I know some billionaires, and I was listening to you, I would think, oh, took a sales course, took a training course, asking me questions, and he doesn't care at all about the answer. It's just that he was told to say these questions to break the ice, and I told him, I said, if you're going to ask questions like that, care about the answer. Yeah. Because because yeah. people who are wealthy have been hit on by many, many people who tried a technique. And yeah, exactly. now you might now you might get away with it. In fact I could see the young woman who was with us actually liked your questions. You know, but she's she's new. She you know, she, she's your age, she's new and oh she liked talking about college and all that mm. stuff. Uh and and so that's what I would say to people, you know, which is why I, I have really mixed feelings about helping salespeople. I'm not against them. Yeah, I, I feel imagine. for them. They have to close. Uh, but my techniques are about giving you a way to care about people. But you have to have some faith that caring about people will be reciprocated by their being appreciative to you. And that appreciation yeah. will cross over into their gratitude and wanting to give back to you. But, you know, if you just don't get that, or if your sales manager is on your back saying, you got to get numbers, you haven't closed much, well, it's probably not going to work. And that's what happened is, uh, you know, it sounds like you're, you understand my techniques, you like to take them internally, but you're young, you, you haven't internalized them, so you tried them, 
but they sounded insincere. They sounded like you were just I, trying, I mean, trying it. Uh, now, maybe they were sincere, and you're just emotionally shy, like nearly everybody who interviews me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think generally, uh, I, I do some things you say quite naturally, and it, it always works, but it was really the awareness that I just read the book that kind of um, maybe put me off of not continuing after that. Um, so you wouldn't argue that the moment people know that these kind of like questions exist, that it kind of, even if you really care, makes them less effective? Um, well, I think it's going to be more effective than not asking these questions. You know, but the point is, if you really want to, uh, if you want to be successful in your job and in life, especially leaders, there, there's a saying, I forget the, per, the person who said it, and they said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And now you won't be any less than all the other people who don't care. But when you can show that you care, like there's some tips I'm giving people, and they can use this, but it helps if you care. And the tips I'm using for people who are sheltered in place or stay at home, what I've suggested is every morning for 15 minutes or half an hour, you go to LinkedIn and you identify contacts who are living in hot spots where coronavirus is, there's an outbreak. New York City, uh, other places. And you can reach out to those people if they're first contacts. You may never have known them. And you can say, um, hi, uh, we're connected on LinkedIn. We've never met. I see that you live in New York City. Um, just wanted to check to see if you're okay. We're fine. Hope you're, hope, yeah. you're, hope you're being safe. That's all you send. You don't say, and by the way, we have a discount, and if you want a free consulting session, we got that. You know, the first reach <laughs> is concern. Yeah. And uh, I believe you'll get a pretty good response rate. And then the second thing is, uh, uh, the second uh, message you send them is you go, W-H-E-W, like, am I glad to hear that you're okay in New York City or, or wherever? It just sounds yeah. like it's an awful situation. Uh, glad to hear that. Um, and, and, and I'm also curious, um, uh, is, has your business, like almost everyone I know, uh, been really negatively affected by this? I'm just curious. That's all you say. And then, see, what you're doing is step by step, you're building a relationship. Now, this is what I tell young people. Uh, start in your life, start collecting people who are excellent at what they do. Not just very good, they are excellent. I mean, people who have worked with them, bought product, they, they're excellent. 
because how I roll in the world, which is probably why I'm reasonably influential, is see, I can then say to people, um, uh, I have, uh, one of my habits is collecting excellent people. When I find people that are excellent, they're rare. And I know a bunch of excellent people that I can introduce to you and I don't get any referral fee. So if there's anything you're dealing with, I happen to know a bunch of excellent people. And when I know these excellent people, I say, don't you hard sell this person. I'm making a referral. You're excellent at what you do and don't you push because I'll take you off my list. And, uh, And I don't get a referral fee But there is something in it for me. What happens is I build goodwill, especially the people I'm referring business to. And uh, now I'll refer someone who's excellent, even if they never do anything for me. But what I'm finding is some of them will say, you know, I got to somehow give back to you, Mark. This is crazy. You've done so many things for me. You never ask for anything in return. And I don't. I never ask for anything in return. And the givers will say, tell me more what you do, Mark. You know, and then I'll share something, whatever. But to me, I think that's the way to develop a successful career is to, is to start uh, uh, developing relationships with people that you say, this person's excellent. They're not just very good. They're excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so like like now, uh, I mean, if you, if you wanted to help me, you don't have to help me. But someone said, Mark, I got to help you. I said, Well, you don't have to, Mark. I found out what you're excellent at. I said, Really? I didn't know. I didn't know what I was excellent. At. He said, Mark, what you're excellent at is helping people who are out of touch with who they are, and it's hurting them in their personal and professional life you're able to zoom in and in a safe way get people in touch kind of with who they are and if and if they have at least the awareness that geez I have all the competence I have all the qualifications but I'm not get I'm not successful that's what you that's what you do mark you can help people get in touch with who they are and I said oh well, what you know, I'm glad I'm excellent at that. You know, it's a nice, nice thing to say. That's a great, that's a great answer. I love that. I think there's some really interesting things there. Um, so, you indeed have a tremendous uh, excellence at what you just described, and you have also a huge reach, uh, and you are quite clear on who you don't want to talk to, right? Like salespeople, not as much, maybe. Um, who do you think are the people that can benefit the most from what you do? Well, it's interesting. I think it's the people who have had a wake-up call. And the wake-up call can be professionally or personally. Uh, In fact, I just did an intervention between a funder and a founder. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and they had a great relationship going to begin with, but it's not generating money as quickly as the funder had hoped. And the founder... uh, is really a genius. I mean, when you meet the founder, you say, this person's excellent, they're a genius. And eventually, they're gonna hit it big. 
Um, uh, and so, but they've been like this. And so they trigger each other because the funder is thinking, mm-hmm. maybe I need to pull funding. And the founder is feeling, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That kind of thing. And what's happening is they're triggering each other. And when they trigger each other, they get nasty at each other. So I did a Zoom call with them because down deep, you know, they really liked each other, cared about each other, wanted to build whatever this thing was going to become. Uh, And so the funder, if you can understand that mindset of someone, I said, uh, I said, can I tell you, can I make an observation? I said that to the funder. And this is after I developed a little bit a little uh, bit of rapport. And I said, uh, you don't wake up in the morning ever wanting to hurt people. You just end up doing it. Because when you get uptight and you feel cornered and you feel powerless, it brings out a real ugly side of your personality, which you have very little control over, And then by the time it's out of your mouth, the damage is done. But down deep, Mm. you don't want to hurt anyone. Is that true? He started to cry. On camera. Well, we weren't recording it. I mean, you know, we're just doing a Zoom thing. And you could feel, I mean, as I'm telling it, I'm sensing you might even be able to feel right now in this conversation as you're picturing it. You could just feel everything calm down. And then what I said to the founder, and I said, let me tell you an observation about you. You are a genius. I mean, you're one of the smartest people I've met. And what you're working on, one of these things is going to work out. And people know you're a genius. And people know that you don't have a hurtful bone in your body. You're like a kind and loving Steve Jobs. But what I got to tell you is what's clear in your mind is not what comes out of your mouth. You talk in jargon, you talk in technical stuff, you talk in things that nobody can understand except everybody trusts you and believes that you understand it and something can be done. And what happens is you're not aware of that, that you're a lousy communicator because you'll talk in techno speak. And, and, and a funder, you know, will want to know something about it. But within 30 seconds, people don't know what the hell you're talking about, except they believe you. You know, and, uh, and, then, and then he smiled at me, the founder, with relief. And, and he, he says, yeah, I know I do that. I said, well, you got to change it. You got to change it. Because <laughs> you know, you, you, uh, people... Uh, admire your intelligence and they're impressed with it but you're making people crazy mm. especially people who are funders you know and then yeah. uh, and then they're both listening to this and, and it was like doing a hot sink between you know uh, between an iPhone and an Android it was like <laughs> you know but, um, but, can you, but can you picture that in your mind's eye oh yeah yeah like you, you get two people who have so much potential to kind of reach their full potential with what you're mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
crying is a really big thing. At some point um, during the um, talking to Crazy, you even mentioned that your editor said, or some someone said that there was too much talking about crying. Um, I'd love to just talk a little bit about crying in general. I'm, I might give you an example. I think compared to most males of my age, I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a wimp. If I watch Frozen, I cry, but I also cry at the Green Mile. So it doesn't matter if it's Disney or anything. But I'm I'm quite a crier. And when I was maybe a little bit younger, I was quite maybe ashamed of that. But I feel more and more like it's such a nice way to relief. So it was really refreshing to actually hear how much you talked about crying, but I can see how people are bothered by it. No, I'm going to unpack it because uh, <laughs> I have a uh, talk called uh, Empathy for Techies because they hate the word empathy. Mm-hmm. To right. a techie, the word empathy is is like terrible jargon. Like techies use jargon. Right. The word empathy to techies is jargon. I don't get it. I listen. I try to solve this empathy thing. Everyone says I need to be more empathic. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I don't get it. So how I explain it to people and where crying comes from, and a lot of this comes from my book, Just Listen, is I came up with something in Just Listen called the mirror neuron gap. And so uh, what was discovered many years ago is in macaque monkeys is that there's a that there's an area in their brains uh, that they called monkey see monkey do neurons because it's it's what causes monkeys to imitate other monkeys they'll even imitate you you stick your tongue out they'll stick their tongue out back at you and what they've discovered is it's not only in monkeys it's in human beings and it's associated with imitation learning and empathy and people who are on the spectrum. A lot of techies, uh, uh, there's a defect in their mirror neurons. In other words, they, they don't know how to mirror people. Uh, they're not doing it intentionally, but they're on the spectrum. So they solve problems. They default to you know, being on the spectrum, solving problems. And in my book, Just Listen, what I talk about is that when people care about the world and work hard, but they feel the world doesn't care about them, when they're putting themselves out there and then someone's sarcastic to them. You can actually see these in the uh, press briefings between President Trump and his key advisors, you know, these scientists who are trying to help him. But what will happen is he'll dismiss them, he'll put them down. And so those people are caring about saving the world and protecting President Trump from himself, and he's dismissive of them. So every time you're doing that and the world treats you poorly, it increases what I call the mirror neuron gap. And when the mirror neuron gap increases enough, it triggers stress and high cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. And when... And when cortisol is triggered, it, that in turn triggers a part of people's brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is part of what's referred to as the emotional brain. And when you trigger the amygdala, it's also a, a survival part of your brain. It causes your brain to send more blood flow to your lower brain, your survival brain. And it takes it away from your thinking brain because you've got to survive. So 
increased mirror neuron gap leads to high cortisol, leads to amygdala hijack, leads to reacting, leads to not being able to think or cooperate. But inside everybody is a hunger for the mirror neuron gap to be closed. So when you see frozen, or um, when you see people who are at odds with each other through a whole movie, and then they suddenly close the mirror neuron gap, you, you identify with the characters, and because you have people in your life that you have a gap with, you cry because what happens is you get a surge of oxytocin, and oxytocin abruptly lowers cortisol. Your amygdala calms down. Your blood flow goes up into your upper brain, and you cry with relief. So there was a movie some years ago called Silver Lining Playbook, and I mentioned that, and it's with Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence, and they're, and they're quirky people. And the whole movie, they're missing each other. You know, they're, you know, they're quirky. And, and there's a final scene where I think they run out from something and, you know, and he chases after her and they have this conversation and, and, he, uh, and, uh, and he says he loves her or that he wrote some note or something. Oh. And, and as you see them connect after a whole movie of disconnecting, if you're in the audience... And if you're in a relationship where you're not connecting, what you're watching is the mirror neuron gap close. And when it closes, which is something you want to do with people in your life, hmm. uh, uh, the physiology I just explained causes people to cry with relief. And see, this is what you you know really want to do if you're a leader. If you're a leader, this you you want to give. Your cortisoled up people a surge of oxytocin. I'll, I'll share a tip that uh, uh, I have a blog and a lot of organizations are using this now. And you can look, go to markgoulston.com. Uh, I'm just blogging like crazy. And uh, you'll have to search for this, but it's called the 10 word remote, uh, remote check in. The 10 word remote check in. Because yep. what's happened is entrepreneurs have said to me, you know, everybody's stressed out, and I want to give people the chance to check in, but we got to get business done. And if, you know, everyone's, mm-hmm. you, you know, you don't want to just say, oh, let's do a check in, and then people feel they can't talk. You know, and if one of your employees says, you know, my, you know, my mom's on a uh, ventilator, you know, you feel like yeah. you got to, you got to give them room, but you got to get stuff done. So the 10 word check in, what you do, is if you're the leader of a meeting, you say to your team, I don't want anyone on our team to feel alone in distress. And we're all distressed. We don't know what the future is, Mm -hmm. and we're all scared. So I wanna try something, and I'm gonna give you 10 words, and in in the chat area, and you don't have to do this, but I want you to think of the worst you have felt in the last week. Again, we don't want people to feel alone. We're in this together. Think of the worst you felt and attach the word next to your name. And here are the 10 words. Anxious. Uh, depressed. Afraid. Frustrated. Angry. Ashamed. Alone. 
lonely, exhausted, numb. And it's in the article. You can find that. Mm. And and so what? So imagine this, because a lot of times you're doing a Zoom call and people are getting exhausted with Zoom. And and part of the reason they're exhausted is they can't multitask. I mean, if you're you can't. You can't look at your phone on a Zoom call. You've got to pay attention because they know when you're distracted. <laughs> and then when you just put your name instead of they know, oh, they put their name because they want to check their email or pick their teeth or something, uh, they're, you know, they're distracted. And, uh, and so that's why one of the reasons Zoom calls are exhausting. And a lot of times when you go into the chat area, you've got people giving you links and they're speaking and it's long. It, 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 it's, it's more exhausting. But imagine this check-in. When you see people's names, and next to the name you see uh, afraid, alone, uh, numb. As you begin to mm. see these people, it's like the what made you smile today. It's kind of like what made you hurt today. Yeah. And as you see these people that sometimes you only know as functions, as they do that, I don't know if you can picture it in your mind's eye, but the whole team leans into that. And what happens is you begin to feel we're all in this together. And then you also admire everyone's courage. We're all in this together and we're pushing through it. So it create. and I've heard from some organizations, this is the best single exercise we've ever done to help our culture. Hmm. So can you picture that? And what it is, is you're taking people who are cortisol cortisol out and you suddenly give them a massive oxytocin surge uh, and what happens is it immediately lessens the cortisol the mirror yeah. neuron gaps collectively get smaller and what I've heard people say you know it's really weird people people saying they walked after after that call they just felt lighter they felt more hopeful so can you see that in your mind's eye how it works Oh, I surely can, yeah. So I, I just want to get back to something you said earlier uh, about crying. I just want to make sure I understand correctly. So if people cry a lot, like maybe myself, would you argue that that's maybe a symptom of something? Like it seemed like you were hinting at that that may be a symptom of having the gap. Well, there's different kinds of crying. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm kind of empathic is there was, a, there was a book I was going to write, which would be a bestseller, and it's, and it's my life, and it would be called Flirting with Depression. So, yeah. you know, I've never, you know, other than dropping out, uh, but, you know, I made it back. You know, I've never been hospitalized or whatever, but I know what depression feels like. And mm -hmm. I think because of it, I know when other people feel it, I know what it feels like. And... Um, and so there's times when I've cried, and, and I think the good, when I'm empathizing or I am touched or I'm moved, or I'm just crying with joy because I became a grandpa recently, and it's just the most amazing feeling. I just, oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you. I mean, I just love this kid, and I get to see him frequently. So that's a different crying. But I can tell you there have been times also, and I think you know, times in my life when I've felt a little depressed, where, where it's... It, it, Sometimes it's almost an uncontrollable crying. And I, and I think it's giving me some relief, but it, it is a symptom. It's a symptom of feeling depressed. Yeah. You know, like, like, you know, it's like the feeling of it's just not getting any better. I can't lift this thing yeah. up. 
uh, and and I become such an empath. I I can even feel, you know, the, almost the chemical imbalance going on in my head. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's a different thing. That's fascinating. But, yeah, but that's a but that's a sign uh, or a symptom, you know, of being depressed and maybe even being physically depressed. And uh, you know, on occasion in my lifetime, I've taken some antidepressants, uh, but the side effects uh, often become intolerable. I'm, I'm really glad you uh, you cleared that up because that's kind of I think that's an important distinction uh, between the two there. Wow, that, I mean that overwhelmed me a little bit to be honest. <laughs> How? What, what? What overwhelmed you about it? I mean, I'm just thinking. Uh, crying is a bit of a weird thing in a sense. Like it's something I see so few people do. Um, everywhere and I feel like people are so ashamed of it um, for instance if you think about the workplace it, you almost never see someone cry if they will they'll, they'll quickly run off to the toilet or, or something so so to me the whole subject is just something that, that keeps coming up in well, my head well, quite well, a lot. well part of it okay this is you know this is going to be one this is going to be one of your longer podcasts but you're getting a lot of stuff from me so um <laughs> One of my books is PTSD for Dummies. I'm a trauma, you know, I'm somewhat of a trauma specialist, suicide specialist. And there's going to be massive, possibly global PTSD after the pandemic. In fact, I hope I, I hope I am wrong, but there's a possibility hmm. that the PTSD will be worse than the pandemic. And the reason being, and the way PTSD works. And there was a recent article someone sent me. It's in New Yorker, New, New Yorker magazine, not New York magazine, New Yorker magazine. And I think the title is something about health workers and mental health. And when you share it, it just talks about health workers having to go into a closet and cry. You know, just uh, and, and 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 part of the way people survive trauma, especially in the front lines especially when you couldn't go see your mom or dad die or they died alone or you were a health worker who had to facilitate that is you suppress your feelings because you have to survive. <clears throat> and feeling feelings in the midst of battle, you have to survive, so you suppress them. It's like RAM. Uh, it's like working memory. You know, you need to suppress the feelings to get stuff done. It's like working memory in your computer. And what happens is when you suppress and you suppress long enough, it crosses over into repressing, and repressing is like your hard disk. And and when it goes into your hard disk, it can collect a lot of stuff. You know, your working memory is maybe 16 gigabytes. You know, your hard data can be a couple trigabytes. And... And what happens is, uh, when you repress things, it doesn't. It's not as exhausting to keep them out of intruding. But Sigmund yeah. Freud had a phrase called "return of the repressed." And what happens is, our repressed feelings that uh, break through into symptoms. So we overeat, we drink too much, we sleep too much, we yell at people, we, um, uh, and we don't directly connect those activities with repressed feelings, but that's what's driving them. Uh, and, and what happens is not only that's what's driving them, uh, 
we're prone to getting triggered again. So, mm-hmm. for instance, um, like I have a feeling, you know, one of, one of the saddest things is the toll coronavirus is taking on nursing homes. I mean, these people are so vulnerable. Yeah. The health workers there are so vulnerable. They're, you know, the amount of people mm-hmm. dying in a single thing. And I hope I'm wrong. But what I would predict is when they get through this, there's going to be an exodus of people who work at nursing homes because they're just going to be triggered. They're not going to be able to walk down a hall without thinking uh, or worried. Uh, uh, you know, geez, I didn't hear from that room. Did that person die? And yeah. so they're going to be triggered too much. Right now, they're doing what they can to survive. But it wouldn't surprise me, and it's not a wrong thing for them to say, you know, once we get through this pandemic, because I'm not going to abandon the nursing home because I would just feel too guilty, you know, I'm going to find another, something else to do. I don't care what it is. Yeah, so um, uh, what I'm curious there is you seem very aware of your own thoughts. So when you're experiencing this, say, as a nurse, is there any way you can kind of you know, change what is happening on your REM disk, so to say, so that you don't have the PTSD? Uh, well, what I'm recommending, but we have to... Uh, um, it's interesting. There's a woman I just interviewed, and she and her name is uh, uh, Diana Hellyer. Yeah. Uh, but she wrote a book called Responsible, a Memoir. And she was a female CEO of a hospital in Los Angeles where in 2009, one of the employees uh, killed his two bosses. And it was a beloved employee who was the shooter. And this memoir is unbelievable. And the nobility of Diana is incredible because it shows you how uh, how she had to suppress the feelings, but she had the feelings. You know, when when some of the employees were processing it and going through it, you know, could she weigh in? Should she share her feelings? Shouldn't she? And so what happened is she went through a process of suppressing the feelings, but she'd get triggered. You know, in subsequent years, there was a bomb threat. You know, nothing happened again like that, but she'd get triggered. And one of the things that caused me to just so admire her, she's now a hero to me, she doesn't know that, is that in 2015, six years later, the the hospital was in very good shape. She got it back to really functioning well. And, and, And she abruptly resigned. They would have loved to keep her there for years. And she said, I resigned because they deserved a better CEO who wasn't struggling with these things. And I decided they deserved a better CEO because she said I was getting triggered. You know, they didn't tear down the hospital after the shootings, and she'd say, you know, I'd be walking around, and, you know, and I'd get memories. And by the way, all the murders took place in the department that she grew up in, in the, the pharmacy department. She started out as a pharmacy student. This was her whole professional life. And so, uh, yeah. and so, but it was just, uh, I was just so impressed with her. I mean, she, it was amazing.
but she said, you know, it's they can function well now. They deserve someone who's not distracted, and I'm going to go heal. And that's when she discovered she had PTSD. And then she went and got it treated and taken care of. And, you know, now she consults to organizations that are going through trauma. So in answer to your question, what can people do? It's a balancing act. So, and... Uh, because, see, I think when people share what they're going through, like in that 10-word uh, remote check-in, it really helps them get mm -hmm. through it. And I think there's a way of doing that with healthcare workers, but you have to do it in a very limited way because, as I said, if you do a check-in and then, you know, one nurse or one doctor just is just sharing too much well what happens is the other people don't have yeah. a chance to share you know they're respectful of that person so i think there's a way of giving people a taste of what everybody's going through without any one person overwhelming everyone else and yeah. and i think people can uh, so so i would like to see if we can institute that uh because I, I uh, and by the way, here's some more information you don't need, uh, uh, but you'll like. Uh, there's the reason the ten word remote check-in works is because you're using something called affect labeling. And affect labeling, there's a lot of work done in that by a uh, a researcher at UCLA named Matthew Lieberman. And his research showed is that when you attach the correct word to an emotion you're feeling, it lowers amygdala activation by a third. And, and by the correct feeling, it's not sort of like, I'm so angry at you, I'm so ticked off, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but even that lowers it a little bit. If you say, but what are you really feeling? Blah, 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 blah. But what are you really feeling? I'm disappointed. What are you disappointed about? Mm. I thought this would work out, and it looks like it's not going to. And then what does that make you feel? Sad. Sad. But you can see how when you can correctly uh, uh, add the, uh, the word, uh, and it's interesting, there's more words than those ten words. Sad is not amongst them. But that's because I believe mm -hmm. when you're going through trauma, you don't have the time to feel sad. Yeah. But I think there's something in there if uh, you know if people listen to this and they want to hear more then let's do a pilot program. Because you know when you're bottling it up and you're dealing with it alone and then you go home and the way you deal with it is you eat a whole pizza or you get drunk it's not really dealing with it. And and what's happening is it's building, it's building, it's building and it's going to explode. And I think if I think there's a way for people who are going through this to just give them a taste of affect labeling enough so everyone feels we're in this together. Like, I think it's helpful, you know, every night at 7 p.m. in New York, everybody's chairing the healthcare workers and the fire thing. And I think that's helpful because they feel appreciated mm -hmm. um, and certainly uh, feel that gratitude because that, that lessens a little bit the mirror neuron gap. But I think shared compassion and empathy for each other as you're going through it 
would narrow the mirror neuron gap even more. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Um, a question I, that just came up once that, when, when I was listening is that your work is full-time dealing with so much pain in so many ways, right? It's, it seems to be your full-time focus. Do you never get exhausted from exper- kind of experiencing it with people, all the pain that is there? Um, you know, I get, I get tremendously sad. See, if you can feel sad, pure sadness, it's not that exhausting. See, what's exhausting is having all that stuff going on and feeling nothing. Well, you are feeling something. What's happening is you're numb. And I think part of what helps me get through it, uh, although I must tell you, Larry King's nickname for me is Dr. Morose. He said, you're so morose. Well, that's because, that's because I'm not talking about sports and I'm not just talking about politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I, and I'm quiet. I'm quiet. I don't think I'm morose. But in our calls, we banter a lot because, you know, it's yeah, kind of a way to sort of, you know, break up the day. Uh, and he, he likes it. I, I said, look, you know, if you don't want me around, he said, oh, no, no, we need morose. That's just my nickname for you. So, um, but I think what helps me is when I notice someone opening up to me, like I told you about the founder and the funder. Uh, and I was able to unlock their pain or their anger. And I could see the relief they both felt. For me, there's nothing better than that. I mean, it's because it's like, wow. I got people yeah. to unlock and break through something that they were stuck in. Wow. So uh, it's, it's, it's very uplifting and... Uh, you know, and, and you know, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you asked me, you know, what matters most to me, and this circles back to the beginning of this uh, this marathon we have. Uh, I think I was, uh, I think I was born or meant to alleviate psychological pain. I mean, I uh, uh, and. Uh, and it doesn't mean I can't laugh. I mean, I got a sick sense of humor, and maybe that's a little bit of my uh, outlet. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but you know, when you can discover what you were born to do and meant to do, and you get to do it, there's nothing better than that. So, um, Mark, I want to ask you one more question before we head off. Uh, no, actually, two more. One is actually that uh, a question that you ask, and so for yourself, what have you been maybe frustrated, upset, or disappointed with lately? Well, if you go to markgoulston.com, um, I'm a blogaholic, and what happens is I go to sleep, and there's a problem in the world, and I'm not the best sleeper, but there's a problem in the world, and when I wake up, because of my 40 years of noticing, I start to find solutions. And, uh, and I put them out. I mean, the blogs are in every different direction. And I do give uh, tactics like the FUD crud, you know, uh, and other things I've, uh, I've shared with you. Uh, what's frustrating is 
wanting to team with people and build this. So, for instance, the 10-word uh, check-in, um, remote check-in, that could be built into something that could be scaled. That doesn't require my empathy. That could be scaled. But what frustrates me is that's, that's not my that's not my skill set. And uh, would love to find someone or people who would say, let's just build it. Uh, and, but I'm getting close to that. Uh, in fact, I, I can't share it, but uh, in the last 48 hours, a couple highly, highly regarded gurus and leadership, beloved, right. uh, asked me to write a book with them. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a it's a big wow, and so and they have big companies, and I think why they asked me to do that is because you know they've read some of my stuff, and it's <clears throat> it's I remember someone said my intellectual property is uh, counterintuitive meaning people will say, you know, I never would have thought of that, but intuitively correct, meaning it'll work. I never would have thought about that, but I think that'll work. What made you smile today? Wow, that's counterintuitive, but I think it would work. The FUD crud thing, I never would have thought about that, but I think that will work. And so I think, uh, if I'm guessing, I think they, they notice that. But anyway, I, you know, I can't say more about it. But it's pretty exciting, and um, so that's that's crazy exciting. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I wasn't gonna say it at first, but I, I do want to say it now. Um, I, I'm gonna ask you how, how old are you, Mark? That's gonna kill it all. How old do I? How old do I look? Well, that that's the that's the point, Mark. I, this morning I went down to my family. And I showed part of your TED talk to all seven people sitting at the table. And I just wanted to play the game. So I said to everyone, how old do you think Mark is? And first guess was 45. Second guess was maybe mid-50s. And then I gave them the answer, which you might want to give. And it's, I, I mean, this, this, uh, the reason we're, I'm saying this is because... We're going to blow it. They're, everyone who's listening to this is going to go delete, delete, delete. I'm okay. And what did you and what did they say when you said he's 72? They didn't believe it at first. So they, they, they said that's the first thing you have to ask him. How does he do it? Well, I'll tell you what it is it's being in touch with feelings because I have older brothers uh, and we all look pretty young, but they look a lot older than me. But you know, like a lot of men, you know, it's tough for them to get in touch with feelings. And I don't touch up my hair, and I don't get a haircut, but I'm 72. Look at this. Not a lot of gray in there. And, but I think yeah. when you're in touch with your feelings, and you can cry appropriately, and you can release things, um, I, I, I think it keeps me young. Although my wife says, yeah. no, that's not the secret. My wife of 41 years says, it's your immature mark. You're... Uh, and and I, and I and she said, and and the bad thing is you're proud about being immature. And I That's and I look at her and I said, 
Thank you, Grandma. <laughs> Just proving her point, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. My last question is, what do you want to give people at the end of this conversation? What would kind of be the thing you would want to put on a billboard for everyone to remember you by? He helped, he helped us to feel less lonely. That's great. All right, Mark, thank you so much for this conversation. Grateful to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for your time, for your great insights. Well, I hope there was a po I hope there was a pony in there somewhere. Well, that was it already, the sixth episode of the Monaco Moments podcast. If you enjoyed it, please share it with anyone that you think will find it interesting. Also, make sure to have a look at www.markgolston.com. And if you want to support me, you can also follow me on Instagram at app or visit my website, jamesmonocle.com. That's also where you will find all of the show notes to anything we've discussed today. So hopefully, till next time.